Resiliency Within with host Elaine Miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit traumaresourceinstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine Miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine Miller Karras. Welcome to Resiliency Within. I am indeed Elaine Miller Karras, and I welcome Elsa Hunison, who is a deafblind disability rights activist whose work has been praised as eloquence and activism in lockstep to my show today. Her work has been published in CNN Opinion and the Boston Globe. Elsa has presented in many locations, including she's presented at Microsoft, Google, Slack, the Federal Reserve Board, which is very interesting to me about that one, Elsa, General Assembly, Seattle, the Henry Art Gallery, and the University of Chicago, among others. And she's also collaborated with the New Jersey 11th for Change and the New York Disability Pride Parade. She holds a master's degree in women's history from Sarah Lawrence College and served as an adjunct professor in the Department of Humanities at the New Jersey Institute of Technology. A speculative fiction writer who has taught workshops with Clarion West as well as writing the other. She's a two-time Hugo Award winner and nine-time finalist. Her latest book, Being Seen, won the Washington State Book Award for Biography and Memoir and is now available in paperback. Elsa lives in Seattle and was recently named one of Seattle's, Seattle's most influential people. And I wanted to say something a little bit more about her book, Being Seen, it's part memoir, but also part cultural criticism, part history of the deafblind experience. It explores how cultural concept of disability is more myth than fact and the damage it does, does to us all. So welcome, Elsa. Elsa's on top of a mountain right now, which I think is fantastic. And we got good sound. So welcome. What do you have on your mind as we get started? Thanks so much for having me. I mean, I, I think you mentioned that I'm on top of a mountain. I'm probably the only deafblind person out here today who's skiing unassisted, and that's always fun. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So how do you, I mean, this is a curiosity question. So I know there's trees and things. Do you have a sense of the tree, or do you map it out before you go? So I grew up skiing this mountain. This is Snoqualmie Pass. Um, but I tend to stick to runs that are really wide, where there aren't a bunch of obstacles, because that actually lets me ski without having to use as much of my vision as sighted people. So I use a lot of wide runs versus tight runs. Well, that, I mean, I, that is to me is like one of the most amazing um, uh, examples of your well-being and your chutzpah. Um, there are many people that are sighted that wouldn't go down a mountain. So I just have great respect for you. But, you know, I want to I start out by asking you um, a couple of questions. And one is, the, is I wanted to start out by asking you about ableism. Mm -hmm. um, what does that mean? And what, why is that important for us to understand that terminology? So ableism is like all of the other isms, racism, sexism, etc. Um, it is the societal construct that tells you that you shouldn't like disabled people, you shouldn't trust disabled people, or you should fear disability if you are a non-disabled person. And it is the underpinning of a lot of discrimination that disabled people face every day, the societal construct. Well, so, you know, right in chapter one, you say that 
non-disabled people don't seem inclined to trust disabled people. Mm -hmm. You said a little bit about it. Can you, can you share more about that? So one of the things that I've noticed is that people either say, oh, you're amazing because you're deaf blind and you can ski, or they say you can't be that blind if you can ski. So you're not really blind. And that, that comes from this idea that we have to mythologize disability. So if you're looking at it from the construct of, well, I know what blindness looks like because every blind person has to be completely blind. That's one version of disability. You're then policing. And you're saying, well, you, you can see a little bit. So obviously you're not actually blind. Whereas if you were to trust the disabled person, you would say, oh, you're blind and you know how to ski. That's pretty cool. How do you do it? So when I asked you the question that I asked you about, well, do you map it out before you go or do you just really, you know, you know, you, you know how to do it. You just, you know how to do it. Yeah. And that's exactly right. Like you didn't ask a question about whether or not I have my disability. You asked how I'm asking. Which yes. Is not exactly. Yeah. Well, that's good to know. So, um, so the, the next question is, you know, what are some of the challenges you face on a daily basis that people with full sight and hearing don't? And what tools or processes have you put in place to make your life easier? Or would um, a more appropriate word be possible? I mean, I think it's it, it depends on the day. Like today, um, I'm wearing hearing aids. I wear glasses. Um, I have a spe specifically picked out ski goggles that have a color that I can see through because there are different lens colors that do different things for my eyes. And so I had to pick the right color so that I could see in the snow. Um, and that is a lot about knowing my body. And so the, the expert knowledge of my body and how it works is a lot of what makes my life possible. Uh, learning how to trust my own instincts over what other people might tell me is a large part. And so, yeah, I use tools. I have a white cane. I have glasses. I have hearing aids. But I would say that it's that trust and that expert knowledge that is what gets me through and makes my life possible. More you than know, anything the, else. As you're talking, one of the things I was thinking about, I work um, a lot with different school districts all over the world, actually, with children. Mm -hmm. And I mean, when children are faced with different challenges, you know, I've seen in, in different parts of the world that sometimes schools are really great at inclusivity, sometimes not mm -hmm. so great. Um, and so I was curious about what you might say to, to parents with children uh, about what is the best way to embrace and help them as they're going through their um, the process of guiding their child? So I'm, I'm a parent. And one of the things that I teach my kids is that everybody has to know their own limits really well so that they can learn to push them. And so I push my kids to try new things a lot. And I teach them that they are going to learn through trial and error what their body can and can't do. And they're eventually going to be able to make those decisions based on what they've learned. Because my five-year-old will tell me, I can't do that. I'll be like, well, how do you know you can't do it? You haven't tried yet. <laughs> and yes. so it's that trial and error process that parents of disabled kids are often really unwilling to let them do. Like, I'm not going to let you try that because you're disabled. Well, actually, you need to let them try it because they're going to be the person who can set limits for themselves. That's so, part of so how I like learned the, what my limits are. So it's also the parents sometimes can have so much fear that they kind of, yes. you know, inadvertently give that fear <laughs> to the child 
who, you know, exactly. is, is maneuvering the world in, in their own way. Um, and of course, it's, it's not going to be the parent's experience because it's the child's experience. So this is my question. How did you learn to, to develop that trust? I imagine there's parents out there listening going, my child ha- has a challenge. How did she do that? Because maybe that's something I can help my child with. Well, I think it starts with trusting your kid. A lot of disabled parents and disabled kids don't trust their kids. They think they know better than their disabled kid does. They sometimes even think they know better than the disabled adults around them who share their kid's disability, which is a huge mistake. So the first thing that you need to do is go meet some disabled adults who share your kid's disability. Because what you'll learn from that is what they can do, not what you think they can do, not what you perceive that disability is capable of doing, what actual living human beings are capable of doing. And then you introduce your kid to some role models. You give them access to actual disabled people who can help them learn. Because there's there's knowledge that the disabled adults in the world have that you don't. That's the first step. Well, Listening it, to the actual community. It sounds to me is like having a good dose of humility. Um, yeah. And so that may help you... Um, be able to transverse those those difficult journeys. I had a child with a learning challenge, and it wasn't easy to maneuver through schools no. either. Um, and so um, th- that I think that's a very helpful advice. I think the other... I also uh, want to jump in for a second on sure. that, because I want to say the schools aren't always right. No, that's, they're not always right. They're not always right. And I think that a lot of schools will say, well, we... We think your child needs this, but if your kid is telling you they need something different, you need to put your kid's opinion first above the school. I had a, a teacher tell me that my daughter was had a, was ha- having challenges learning because she wanted to be like her a friend of hers in the classroom mm-hmm. who had already had like a bona fide learning challenge. And mm-hmm. I remember my husband kicking me underneath the table because I was ready to kind of, I, I would never hurt the teacher, but I was re- ready to say probably some superlative words because it came from a complete lack of understanding of the child, right? right? So, yes. Well, I'm I, like, I had my school put me in detention were not passing geometry uh, twice in a row, and they were acting like I wasn't trying hard enough. And the answer was that I was a straight-A student who was incredibly embarrassed and frustrated that I couldn't seem to pass geometry. And instead of being given help, I was given detention for study time. And that didn't fix the problem because I have a learning disability. Well, you know, isn't that interesting? Because I did very well in school too, except for algebra, same sort of thing. Yeah. Um, it's interesting how that happens. Well, and so that, you know, that gets me to my next question that your parents chose to raise you in a, in a non-disabled society. You didn't learn American Sign Language or Braille. You didn't have special education classes or attend a deaf or blind school. Looking back, do you feel that was um, the right choice for you? Or do you think they did you a disservice? I think they did me a disservice. And I, I say that with an enormous amount of love. My, my parents were existing in a time when the IDEA Act did the, the Americans with Disabilities Act was signed after I started school. So a lot of those pieces weren't in place and have not really been fully in place for all that long. But not teaching me sign language, not teaching me Braille, didn't give me tools that exist in the world that could have aided me. And so that's a choice that I disagree with. I I can't go back in time and change it, but I can say that 
giving your kid who's disabled every single tool in the toolkit is better than not. Now, did you go on later in your life and learn American Sign Language in Braille? Yep. So I can I can speak some ASL. I speak ASL with my kids and my, my husband, and I, I sign with my friends who are deaf, and I have friends who sign now who are not deaf but who've learned it. Um, but my ASL is not great because I only started learning it a couple years ago. And it's the same thing with my Braille. My, my fingers are not used to Braille in the same way that a blind person who's been using it since birth is. So well, it's I, just, you know, different. Yeah, it's different. And I mean, I appreciate that you say that, you know, you have great love for your parents. It's like, you know, those things that we look at and say, well, they did the best they could at the time for what they knew. But I guess that's one of the reasons why um, you stress the importance of talking to other people who have, you know, had challenges and what did they do to help them thrive? Because the decision was made with other hearing and sighted people. That decision was not made with a bunch with a, with a blind friend or with a deaf blind friend. Because if my parents had talked to a deaf or blind person, they would have said, she should learn these things. Well, and that's part of what can then perpetuate also as, as I'm, I'm thinking, and please tell me if I'm wrong, but also perpetuate myths, right? That yes. certain people know things that others don't and disabled people don't know as much as non-disabled people, which we know is not true. Right, exactly. Yeah, wow, okay. So, you know, moving into kind of a different, um, a different direction, so you're a media studies professor, and in your book, you say that disabled people are often misrepresented in books, movies, and TV. It, is it worse in some genres than others? And can you give us examples of some of the most egregiously inaccurate portrayals? I mean, I would say that in terms of the romance genre and the horror genre, they're both pretty bad. But I would say that it's across the board pretty bad. Comedy is also not good to disabled people. I'll give you an example. There is a movie that came out a couple years ago called Come As You Are, which is a American remake of a European film that is about a bunch of disabled men who visit a brothel to lose their virginities. It's a comedy. Okay. And the idea is that it's funny that disabled people want to have intimate relations with someone. This is part of what the comedy is. It's comedy, and that doesn't sit well with me. It doesn't sit well with me that we would make that into a joke. It also doesn't sit well with me that the assumption is that these disabled men who have a variety of different disabilities can only receive intimacy if they And so, yeah, it just underscores all of these problems that I think are really troubling. Well, so when you talk about being, you know, a disabled rights activist, are there things when you see a movie like this that you would you know, you would go to to say, wait a second, let's let's take a look at this and let's try to do things differently? I mean, I would start with the fact that all disabled people deserve the right to access to intimacy and intimate relationships, and that starts with people recognizing that yes, you can date disabled people, yes, you can marry a disabled person. None of that is shameful. None of that is wrong. It also starts with recognizing that disabled people are adults not children. And the infantilization of disabled people is a massive issue. So that's one of the ways that I kind of recommend people change their perspective. What about this is funny to you? What about it makes you uncomfortable? And then start to change your attitude based on the the answers to those questions. Well, and you know, we both know how (laughs) how 
absolutely yeah. powerful okay. media can be. So are there examples in the media that you'd say, oh, if you want to learn more about things that are, are, are more accurate, you might want to look at this particular film or this TV program or... or well, I mean, my first suggestion is to watch the show Stitch to Birth, which was on ABC Family. And it's not perfect, but it has deaf characters who are teenagers dating. It has deaf characters who are teenagers exploring political rights. It has deaf parents. And so it actually shows a wide variety of experience for deaf people and a wide variety of states of deafness. And I think that that's a really powerful message to receive. So um, one of the things that, are there are there folks like you, for example, considering what your background is, that they would consult with you about programming? Does that happen? Are people seeking you oh, out? Or do you knock on people's time. doors and say, hey, <laughs> I want to talk to you? I get emails all the time asking me to be a sensitivity editor for projects, to collaborate on projects, and I can't take all of them. So I have to send people to other sources. I have to recommend that they do their own research. But fundamentally, I get calls all the time asking me to help people do a better job with representation on a variety of axes. I also get asked to talk about Judaism and do sensitivity reading for It's in a couple of different perspectives. Well, it's clear to me that you have you have done a done a lot. So let me ask you this question too. It occurs to me, you know, there's one thing about you know that you have been born with this disability, and there's another thing to being an advocate. What caused you to go and be an advocate? Because not everyone that has a disability would become an advocate. So what was it about you that made that happen? I was raised by a parent who was dying of AIDS in the 1990s, and my dad's advocacy was a really big part of how I was raised. And so I just have always grown up knowing that in order to live in a just and equal society, you have to do the work. Huh. And, and just because I, I want to honor your, the memory of your dad, what was his first name? Uh, my dad's name was Michael Norman. Michael, Michael Norman. I want to say it out loud. Well, um, and at the time in the 90s, of course, we didn't have any of the of the medications that we have now. I was living in the San Francisco Bay area. So it was a very difficult time. It and, was a really rough childhood, I will say. It was yeah. not easy. So let me ask you this, you know, what helped you get through? What was it about your lived experience? You know, sounds like your dad was an incredible role model, but you know, what is it? What was it? You know, what's, what's, what's it that you still have? I mean, that you're, that you live the life that you live. Books. <laughs> um, I read so much as a kid. I read Tamora Pierce's books, and I read Patricia C. Reedy's books, and I read Diana Lynn Jones's books, and I read Philip Pullman's books, and I found ways to escape my own reality. And a lot of people will say you shouldn't try to escape, but I think that the ability to escape your reality in a book is actually a really powerful tool because especially if those books are empowering, like Tamora Pierce's books are, they can give you role models to help you change the way that you interact with your people. And so Patricia C. Reedy and Tamora Pierce both wrote female characters facing adversity in ways that were really powerful. And I think that that helped me to overcome a lot of the challenges because of my life, most of which had nothing to do with being saved. <laughs> well, you know, um, I, because my show and the work that I do in the world, 
there's been a lot of talk about adverse childhood experiences. And if you have four or more, and there's certain, you know, bucket that people have identified as adverse child experiences, then that, you know, makes you more susceptible to not only mental health conditions, but also physical conditions. Mm -hmm. But the other aspect that they're doing more research about are what called are called positive childhood experiences. Mm -hmm. And there's a, a researcher, Dr. Christina Bethel, who's been doing research about that. And what she has said is that, for example, one of the, the factors that can help mitigate the adverse child experiences that we have um, are if you have two unrelated people from your family that care about you. And yep. I'm just wondering, did you run across those two unrelated people or more that cared about you? I did. I had a massive community. That's one of the beauties of growing up in the queer community is that everybody bands together. And so I have probably a dozen chosen aunts and uncles, none of whom are blood related to me, but who stepped in and helped take care of me as a kid. And those were people who we could trust. Our apartment building was a huge community. I was safe to run around to people's apartments no hmm. matter what time of day it was. Yes. And it was like I had one giant house full of, filled with family. So, yeah, I had a massive supportive community. And that's part of why I'm so, I, I believe so deeply in the power of chosen family. Because you can't always count on your blood relations, but you can absolutely count on the people that you build trust with. And I, you know, and I think that when, you know, we say that, say things, saying that out loud too, we can't always trust our blood relations. And sometimes they leave us through no fault of their own, through illness or death or or, you know, other challenges, but to think that there's also the chosen family that we can create. And I, mm -hmm. I think that anyone that's struggling out there thinking about, I don't know if I have a chosen family, you know, who, who can care about me that, you know, I really want you to try to reach out, think about a community that you might be able to connect with. And, you know, in terms of starting to create that, even in small ways, because um, one, sometimes one little um, phone call, or I always like to let people know about the 988, which is the, the new suicide um, crisis line, but mm -hmm. also for emotional support, because they're wonderful. I know a lot of the people that work those lines and can connect you to people that can help you if you're struggling. Mm -hmm. So I, anyway, so is there, are there other things? I mean, there are, see, to me, books are fabulous. To, if we can help children, you know, kind of lose themselves in books and, and hear about other, other worlds and other ways of being, I mean, that's, to me, that's like traveling and I don't have to leave my home. It's right there, right? You have it right with you. And it does give us a lot of ideas for role models and, and other things like that. So, so were there other factors that you can think of that were helpful to you? as you were growing up that, that I mean, built your strength and your well-being. I'll go back to that idea of letting you disabled kids try things because I've been skiing since I was two years old. I've been doing ballet since I was four and having a space to be embodied was really, really important. A lot of disabled kids aren't encouraged to live inside of their bodies. Yeah. They're actually encouraged to feel shame around their bodies and that doesn't help them to become fully embodied, embodied human beings. And I credit the fact that I have been a dancer and a competitive swimmer and a skier since I was little. And those are all things that I've been able to do that have created an embodiment for me that's really uh, important. You know, I'm often asked about, you know, what my definition of resiliency is, and I've, it's changed over the years, but 
I, I'm going to just mention what it is right now as you're talking about it, because I, I often say that it's not about not embracing, you know, how we've suffered in life, but it's also paying attention and leaning into what our strengths are. And it's also embodied well-being. Mm-hmm. Embodied well-being can happen, like you say, from all the different experiences that you had, that you were able to start to trust your body and what your body could do. Yeah. And- well, and I try to tell my kids that I, you know, I have one child who is extremely embodied, and I have another child who doesn't know how to connect with her body. And so the kid who doesn't entirely know how to connect with her body, I'm trying to find ways to get her there because she really needs it. Like that's an important part of being in a human body is knowing how it works. Exactly. And, and so I'm just going to encourage all those parents sitting out there going, how can I get my kid more connected sometimes to the, to their self and to a self that they may begin to appreciate is doing things within, within their, their abilities, but also to challenge them to maybe try something new, just like what you were saying with your five-year-old, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, maybe you can do that. Cause I imagine also your disabled kid can do adaptive sports. Like, can you talk a little bit about adaptive sports? That might be helpful for us to know a little bit more about. Absolutely. There are tons of adaptive sports. There are adaptive ski programs all over the country that do things like put wheelchair users on skis. Yes, wheelchair users can ski. They also have headsets for deaf people so you can actually talk to a blind skier and have them go down the, the hill and they just know. For deaf people, they don't actually need any adaptive aids because we just take out our hearing. It's and you can feel what's going on under your feet. Uh, there's adaptive swimming. There's adaptive rock climbing. I have friends with CP who do bouldering and belay rope climbing. So there's tons of adaptive sports out there. You just have to go find them. So I'm going to before I ask you this question, I'm gonna I'm gonna confess my um my lack of knowledge because I've always heard, and I would love to get your um your experience of this that when you have uh, let's say because uh, you 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 can't hear in the same way that I can hear or that you can't see in the same way that I can see but you can do things that I cannot do because you have extra senses or extra adaptability nope. is that true or not it's not true i don't have extra senses i just pay attention to things really differently than you do so is it like you track things more with more intention with attention not even that it's that if you don't hear or see, you have to trust your sense of smell and your sense of trust, touch very differently from the way that a non-disabled person oh, might. You're I just see. using your inputs differently. And so are you using more of the inputs that all of us have but don't use? Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay, that's that's that makes sense. Well, I am enjoying this conversation, Elsa, so much. Um, we it's time for us to take a break already. <laughs> There's the, the questions keep rolling off as we're as we're having this discussion. So I just want to let our uh, Voice America listeners know that we are going to take a short break and we'll we'll be back with with Elsa to talk more about um, her work. And I I want to do hopefully a little deeper dive into your book too, and and uh, let our uh, listeners know. Um, when they go out and purchase, I'm not going to say if, when they go out and purchase your book, what's in store for them. So we'll be back in, in just a few minutes um, and we will continue to talk um, to Elsa about her, about her book, Being Seen. And she'll let us also know where we can, is it on Amazon? Or what do you it's like? It's everywhere. It's everywhere. <laughs> I love that it's everywhere. That's that's a good thing. But So we'll um, talk a little bit more about her experiences and also about her book. 
So we'll be back in just a few minutes. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine miller Karras' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models, is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at Elaine at ResiliencyWithin.com. Elaine miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life. Your health. Your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. I'm here with Elsa Huninson, and she is talking to us about her life, her lived experience, and she's going to share a little bit more with us about her her latest book called Being Seen. And Elsa, welcome back. Um, I would wanted to start out by asking you, so what prompted you, because you've written other things, what prompted you to write Being Seen? I mean, I've been doing media criticism of disability in film for about a decade, and there's a point at which you've written enough essays that you realize you actually are coming around to a central point and you either need to make that point or move on. So I actually sat down and wrote a book because I I was coming to a central point. And that central point was that none of the media was doing justice to disability. So one of the the things um, that I was reading uh, about your work is that you say that you kind of know, you overhear people. People don't think you hear People don't think you see, but you can pick up things. Um, and and sometimes it's not kind what people are saying. Um, how have you learned to, to manage or handle those kinds of things? I mean, it depends on the day and it depends on the person and what they're saying. If it's somebody who's making a really unpleasant comment and I can hear them, 
and I'm in, I'm in a safe place, I sometimes will call them on it and I'll turn around and say, excuse me, but I can hear you. And this is not how we talk about people we don't know. Like, and sometimes it's not a safe time to do so. But I've learned to tell what the difference is between a safe time to call someone out and not a safe time. So um, this kind of goes into uh, my next question too, that's uh, uh, that, that actually... Elsa sent me a lot of suggestions for questions and she really crafted some excellent ones. But in the, uh, chapter 14, um, you toss out the question, if the world were actually Star Trek, would I exist? So you're a nine-time Hugo Award finalist. I'm going to ask you to, sh- to share with my audience what that means. So perhaps that sentence seems like standard fare to you, but can you explain what made you ask that and also what's your answer? So, yeah, I, I have been actually a finalist for the Hugos um, 12 times at this point, I think. And I won my third this September. And uh, I am well equipped because I've been writing science fiction and reading science fiction since I was a kid. Um, and the reason I asked the question is because in most far future settings, disability has been solved. Jordy has a visor. Uh, Right. Darth Vader has a breathing suit. Um, you just you, you see these fantastical solutions that effectively erase the disability. And so would I even exist is a really valid question because would we just have technology that erased my disabled body? Would I just exist in some kind of spacesuit that made it so I could see gear perfectly, even though that's not how my body has ever worked or has ever been intended to work? Because my brain has rewired itself. My brain sees out of one eye just fine. If you were to magically give me sight out of the right eye, I don't actually know how my brain would react to that. But I can't imagine it would react terribly well. So that becomes the question. Would I exist? Would I not be able to sustain the technology that was being given to me? How does that all work? And that's really why I asked. Because I want people to think about what the future actually looks like for disabled people. Well, I know there's been controversy over like the cochlear um, implants among amongst some people. Do you have any comment you want to make about that or not? I do. Cochlears do not make you hear like a hearing person hears. And so everybody assumes that it's just perfect hearing. It's not. If you've never listened to what a cochlear sounds like, you can actually go onto Wikipedia right now and open up the cochlear implant page. And you can listen to Beethoven's Ode to Joy as heard through a cochlear. And it does not sound like what you think it does. So it is not the same. Hearing with hearing aids is not the same. So forcing children to get cochlear implants instead of giving them deaf culture and community is asking them to use a subpar form of hearing. Huh. And so, I mean, are there parents that would get the implants and also expose their children to the deaf community or they're choosing one route over the other? So they're like choosing you were saying, one route over the other. They're okay. choosing hearing over deafness. And if you want to expose your kid to the deaf community, that's great. But you also need to give your child choices around hearing versus not hearing. And I'm seeing more hearing parents do that. Because on TikTok, I've literally seen parents with their kids who wear hearing aids have their kids say, no, I don't want to wear them today. And they say, okay, great. And then they start signing with their kid. 
And that's what I'm talking about. That kid knows what their embodied experience is and they are embracing it and their parents are supporting them. Well, it's also greater skill building. It's like what you're saying that you can, you can sign, but you're not, it's, it's different if you would have started signing when you were a child versus learning. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's, it's like, we want to give our children, don't we? Every possibility to embrace who they are and give them the opportunities to make choices. But I guess my question that when does the child make that choice? You think they should wait till they're 18 or they're I think they should wait till they're teenagers for sure. Yeah. I think putting a folk player on a baby is making a lifelong choice for them that is pretty big. And it's not like it's a small surgery. You're literally drilling into someone's head. Mm. You're not, it's not like with hearing aids where you just put them in. And so are there support networks? And maybe you can help us with that too. You, you, you know, one of the things that you've said, it's important to talk to other adults who may have um, be deaf, for example, and get their take on it. Are there support networks for families that this may be, that was a surprise to them that their child has this? Yeah. There's, uh, there's always going to be deaf community centers that you can work with. I work with the Hearing, Speech, and Deafness Center in Seattle, Washington, and there will be programs like that in other cities. So just find the deaf-centered program near you and ask questions. And if a person wouldn't know, but I think most hospitals now, too, and most doctors will connect you to something, um, at least in the United States, where you can find assistance. Mm-hmm. Now, so this is my other question. Is it is it true that... I mean, when you learn American Sign Language, does are there different languages for sign language? Like if you were Spanish speaking, do you learn uh, sign language differently or is there commonalities? You're, you're absolutely right. There are very different sign languages in different countries. British Sign Language is different from American Sign Language. French Sign Language is different from both of those. Japanese Sign Language is entirely different and is often based on home sign. So there's a lot of different ones. There's also different Braille languages. Thai Braille is very different from American Braille. So you're not picking up a single skill set that is international when you learn American Sign Language. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm hoping you're, you know, I, I really felt this, you're the, the first person that I've had on my show that I can really um, ask these questions in an intelligent way. And I so appreciate you being so open to a- answer these questions for us, Elsa. Absolutely. So let me ask you another question. So um, I'm going to ask you, people may not know what the Hugo Award is. Can you can you share that with our audience, what the Hugo Award is? So the Hugo Awards are basically the science fiction and fantasy community Oscar Awards. They are for exceptional writing uh, within the science fiction genre. Are there any plans to make any of your writings into, let's say, a network, a net, uh, you know, like a Netflix series or anything like that? Oh, gosh, I wish. But no, <laughs> Netflix has not come calling. Well, that would be nice. Um, it would be. <laughs> well, who knows? You never know what's happening. Maybe someone's listening out there right now from Netflix that might give you a call. So. Right. So I'm going to little talk a little bit more about being seen. Can you tell, you know, our audience some of the, you know, the ingredients in it? We want them to read the book, of course, but what are some of the, like, if you were to say, this is kind of like my promo for my book and why I want you to read it. I think you've given us a lot of information so far of why we would want to read your book, but what are some things, points in it that you think be helpful for people to know? 
being seen will make you a better person. Being seen is a window into the disability community that is often not open to non-disabled people. And so it is a way for you to understand what it's like to be disabled in this society where you are actually going to be safe because you're not asking a disabled person to stop in the middle of the grocery store because the disabled person has sat down and written a book for you. Now, it's not always safe reading. This is a book that will challenge you, but that's sort of the point. Every single non-disabled person who has come up to me to talk to me about the book has typically said that it shifted their worldview. And that's why you should read it, because your worldview needs shifting. You live in a world where you are privileged if you have an able body. And the world has been built for you. And if you aren't aware of that, then you need to be. So let me ask you this. So, you know, sometimes um, I'm sure I am guilty of this, that maybe I'll say things in a way. And if you hear what I say, you go, oh, Lane, please don't say that. Are there certain things that you say, please do not say this? Please, if you encounter a person with this, please avoid asking this question. Are there some, you know, like, what are the, what are the, the don'ts that you please want? Please don't to- ask me if I can see how many fingers you're holding up. Please don't <laughs> oh my God, tell really- me. Oh my gosh. I can't believe that. Really? Okay. Yep. Please don't tell me that you're just as blind as I am without your glasses on, because I assure you, you're not. Uh, please don't talk to me about your blind aunt, uncle, second cousin, grandparent. Um, I don't care. Their experience is different from mine. And that's great that you know a blind or deaf person, but they're not going to have the same body that I do. And so comparing our bodies is actually just unhelpful. Uh, Please don't ask people why they have a disabled parking placard if they don't have a wheelchair. Um, Please don't ask my children if they're deaf like I am. Like, these are all of the things. So so people have asked your children this question. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So what are the do's? What are the things that, you know, I want you to know about this? You've told us some things already. But are some there are other things that you say? Okay, this is this is my time. I can say what I want people to hear loud and clear. About please do this. Do be helpful if you're asked to be helpful, and hear that very loudly. If you are asked, can you help me find this? Can you give me a moment to read your menu? All of these things are helpful because ninety percent of the time I can't read a Starbucks menu; it's too far away. So if you're working as a barista and someone says, I can't read your menu, can you help me? Please be helpful. Please don't make them feel like they are a problem child because, frankly, that's just not helpful to anybody. Um, please, if you are an educator, treat disabled parents with the same dignity that you treat non-disabled parents and assume that they are good caregivers. Please create wheelchair-friendly spaces at conventions. Please put in wheelchair ramps. Please be sure that your your employees have enough time off to go see their doctors. These are all ways of changing the world that are really small changes, but they matter a lot. Yeah, because if you make, you know, I guess when we talk about equity, I often think about these terms, you know, we give people, okay, you have all the same time off in your employee, but that's not justice if you have a disability that requires you to go see a physician more than many of the people that you work with. And I, I guess mean, I, 
Go ahead. I am a massive proponent for flexible work hours and and uh, unlimited time off. Because when you have those things together, people take less days off because they're able to take an hour or two to go see their doctor. And when they do actually need to take time off, they don't feel like they're wasting their sick leave or their vacation time because they're having a really difficult health day. So as you were, as you've been, you know, maneuvering, you know, you have your master's degree, you're a professor, are there things in the higher educational field that, again, <laughs> same questions of the do's and the don'ts? <laughs> Sounds that's a loaded question there, Elsa. <laughs> it, it is a loaded question because yes. I left academia because of how inaccessible it is. Uh, so I don't teach in higher education anymore. And I don't, uh, I don't have intentions to pursue a PhD at any point because the academic system is so biased and hostile toward disabled people. And so even with, um, you know, they have offices in most universities that are, are centers that, um, people with disabilities are supposed to be able to get assistance. You have find that there's a limitation to what they can do. Well, if the professor listens, sure. If the school actually funds it, sure. If the campus is actually accessible, sure. But I've had a lot of professors who hear about your accommodations and say, no, that's not happening. They actually say that to your face. That's not happening. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I don't the, allow the laptops in my classroom. I don't allow somebody to take recordings. Absolutely not. So that isn't, that's not equitable treatment. No. Even though they say. Academia, I will say this. Academia is not an equitable system. It is a merit, it's a meritocracy. And so they, the academic system has a habit of assuming that if you don't work hard enough in the the academy's estimation of hard work, you're not actually doing it rather than being an equitable system by which people get the support they need to do the academic work they want to do. And so as you, as a person may be, you know, ready to, let's say, enter that system and knowing what you know now um, and they want to get an education, is there any advice that you would give to them on how to maneuver through that kind of um, obviously not very responsive systems that you've encountered? Be very stubborn. Be very willing to switch classes. If a professor isn't working with you, then you switch sections. If you don't have the support that you need, be willing to change universities. It's a, You have to be really flexible in your approach to your own education and to find the right space. So this kind of gives me, you know, there's, I have all these questions that are just percolating inside of me, Elsa. So I, I, I'm, hopefully maybe I can have you come back again in the future if we don't get all of them answered. And maybe you'll have more too. But one of the questions I think in kind of a different way is that, you know, t- we were talking about intimacy, talking about some of the ways that disabled people are portrayed in a very maybe negative way. So Mm -hmm. what would you like people to know about the capacity for intimacy? If they think, you know, like if you're thinking about dating someone, right? Is there, you know, again, the do's and don'ts, what would you have liked someone to know, you know, about you that they may had had misgivings about or misunderstandings about because they also have lived in this country and have lived with advantage without the knowledge that you're sharing with us today? 
The thing that my husband said to me at the beginning of our courtship really stands out to me. And it was that he had been told that disabled people were fragile. And so he was really afraid of doing something wrong. Oh. And if you, if you want to date a disabled person, first of all, you should. Second of all, you shouldn't treat them like they're fragile. You should treat them like any other partner that you would date. You should treat them with the same dignity and the same experience because that's what they're looking for. They're not looking for a caregiver. They're looking for a partner. So when, you're, when your husband said that to you when you're in your courting days, um, did that touch you that he was able to be so transparent about his feelings? I mean, I think I laughed because <laughs> I'm a very, very not fragile person. <laughs> You don't and, seem fragile at all, Elsa, by the way. No. And so then that was, I just kind of laughed. I was like, sweetie, you are not, like, I am not a fragile flower. I am not growing in a hot house. You're, you're fine. <laughs> I love that. Well, let me, let's get to, uh, you know, one of our uh, questions that we have is, you know, we're, we still have a little bit of time left, but, um, Okay, you're a disability rights activist. I can see you've got a lot of chutzpah. I can hear it in you that you have been someone who stood up. And um, so what will it take to end this ableism in this country? Um, I think you're giving us some ideas of the do's and don'ts, but I imagine there's a lot more. So I'm hoping that we can spend our rest of the time together with kind of doing a deeper dive into how can we change it? Uh, well, we change it by shifting our systems. We literally change the way that we're willing to do business. And we do that by not assuming that the status quo is how it should be. We change, we adapt. We say, you know what? Maybe every building should have a wheelchair ramp or an elevator. We stop incentivizing people to not be disabled. What I mean by that is if you're disabled, everybody will tell you, oh, you need to be more like a non-disabled person. If you're a wheelchair user, you're told that the ideal is to walk. What if we didn't tell people who can't walk that they should try to walk? What if we didn't tell blind people, it's a shame you can't drive, but we actually invested in, you know, autonomous vehicles? What if we created that kind of equity and innovation with a view toward equity? So those are the things that I want people to think about. So are there any, like, um, pieces of, I mean, certainly the, the, the American Disabilities Act was a very big thing that that got passed. And, you know, I, you know, I saw certainly changes in our community. I live in a college town where, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of the accessibility, and it's, it's very clear that happens here. Maybe not, it doesn't, I don't have the discerning eye that you do, um, but I imagine um, that all cities are not created equally as well. So, no. Yeah. <laughs> As you're laughing at me as I say that, you know, you're, my ignorance is showing, Elsa, what can I say? So, I mean, I lived in New York City. I lived in Seattle, Washington. Neither of them is super accessible. Okay. So, um, so, so what, you know, so what are the steps that you take? Like what, you know, let's say you live in a city and, you know, you're saying, hey, this is not according to the ADA. We need to have more accessibility. Um, I mean, do you make a lot of noise? What, 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 yep. what, 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 so you make a lot of noise. You make a lot of noise. If your neighborhood doesn't have curb cuts, make a lot of noise. 
if you realize that your city hall or your or your county courthouse isn't accessible, you make a lot of noise. And it's actually really important that it's not just disabled people making a lot of noise. Because part of the problem is that right now it's just disabled people yelling. And I will tell you the biggest thing that we could change right now that would help a lot of people. And the biggest thing that would help is socialized medicine. Yeah. Our insurance system is broken. The insurance system is impoverishing disabled people. It impoverishes disabled people because they are literally using capitalism to make us pay for having bodies that don't work in the same way that non-disabled bodies do. So one of the ways to fix that is socialized medicine. So how do you see the challenges with having a, you know, well, preconditions? I'll go, that's changed since Obamacare. But um, well, it or has changed, it not? But but not really. Like they can't discriminate against you. They can't stop you from getting insurance. But insurance won't pay for my hearing aids. Insurance can still deny paying for wheelchairs. Insurance can still deny hospital stays, specialists. It's not fixed just because you can get an insurance now. You're right. Insurance you're right. isn't you know no, isn't paying out. No, it's not paying out. No, they'll figure out all, sometimes they'll figure all sorts of ways why they aren't going to um, provide some care. I yeah. cannot, we have just like about three minutes left. So parting words, if you, um, if you want to leave our audience with kind of a last important statement of what you want them to know. Uh, you want people to look inward and see where, what they actually think about disabled people, because if they think really ugly things about us and they need to figure out how to change that to themselves. Yeah. And so if someone wants to get in touch with you, how would they get in touch with you? They can go to my Twitter or my website, both of which are snarkbat, S-N-A-R-K-B-A-T. Yes, it's snarkbat. Okay, snark. Yes. I love that. I don't think people are going to forget that snarkbat, okay? Yep. <laughs> and so snarkbat.com and uh, there's a contact form. All right. And so then I also want to say, say your name of your book again, Being Seen, and they can get it, as you said, everywhere. And it just went into paperback, I understand. It did. Yeah. You can get it at bookstores. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it on IndieBound. You can get it uh, on Libby. So there's lots of different ways. And there's an audio book we're trying there. And I just want to thank you so much, Elsa, for coming and being on the show, um, finding a place to be able to talk to me on that mountain. I think it's been a very illuminating conversation. I've learned a lot. Um, and I hope to learn more um, when I do a deeper dive into your book. And also, I want to thank you um, for really being a voice. And I think you've inspired a lot of people here today. And in my show, I often say, well, yes, this may have happened to you, but what else is true? Oh, my goodness, you're a living example of what else is true. I mean, your strength, your chutzpah, the, the kinds of things that you do in your life. Um, I, I thank you for that, um, coming and sharing your life view with us. And so for my listeners, remember what else is true in your life. You know, has there been a challenge that you've been, you've been facing and you've been trying, or you've been saying to yourself, I don't know if I can make it through, you know, try to think about what else might be true. What's, what's helped you in the past to get through tough times? You know, what uplifts you, what inspires you? I have to say, um, I'm inspired right now by Elsa, and I'm going to thank her again for being on the show. And so until we meet again, I will see you next Monday 
when we will be talking to two wonderful folks from Massachusetts who are working in the field of trauma-informed um, understanding and education regarding children. So until next time, this is Elaine Miller-Karras signing off. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karras, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within, with host Elaine Miller-Karras, is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com.